Good morning, church. It is good to be with you on this first week of Advent as we enter the Christmas season. Uh, as you are well aware, I'm sure that uh, Advent has themes for each of their weeks, and this week is the theme of hope. Uh, it is probably a good week to be talking about hope uh, in the midst of the chaos that we find ourselves in. Um, as you obviously know, we are not gathering today, and uh, the realities of the world have come to our doorstep, and um, we're not able to meet. And so to be able to, in the midst of that moment, talk about hope is, is a wonderful and, and powerful thing, and I'm, I'm thankful to be able to do that with you today. Uh, as we begin to talk today, um, what I, what I want to do is give you a picture of what hope looked like in that, in that first century, in, in the time leading up to the birth of Jesus, uh, into the time when the Messiah would come on the stage. Um, I want to spend some time getting into the mind of uh, the first century Jew, um, and in reality, the, the mind of Israel uh, for the preceding several hundred years. Uh, and to do that, we're going to look at uh, a passage from Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 2. It's verses 2 through 5 today. Um, but as, as we do that, before we do that, uh, let's talk just a minute and, and sort of rehearse some of the history which we've talked about before. As Isaiah is writing this passage that we're going to read today, uh, we are in the period known as the Assyrian Crisis. This is the time when the Assyrian nation, which was north of Israel, had begin, began to march south. They have taken the northern kingdom. If you recall, Israel split into two different kingdoms, the northern and the southern. Uh, the northern kingdom has fallen to the Assyrian Empire, and it is the Assyrian Empire is pressing down southward onto the northern empire. And so it's a time of great turmoil, of strife, of anxiety, of worry on the part of the Israel pe Israelite people. Um, and Isaiah comes on the stage as a prophet, as a spokesman for God, to give Israel the words of God. He starts in the first chapter, uh, and the first chapter is, is somewhat dark. It rehearses and tells them about the trouble that they have caused, that they find themselves in. And as it opens in the, the second and third verses, it says this. It says, Sons I have nurtured and raised, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's stall. Israel did not know. My people did not pay heed. And Isaiah is speaking the words of God to his people uh, and and acknowledging and calling to their attention that they have forsaken him, that they have forgotten whose people they are, they have forgotten their purpose and their role. And as a result, he will go on through that first chapter to uh, detail all sorts of warfare and corruption, uh, political power plays, uh, sort of a manipulative cult that had come about, um, all of the things that you would think that ought not be present in a people of God were present at this time in, in the nation of Israel. And it is Isaiah's role, speaking for God, to call their attention to this fact. And, and Isaiah is trying to get them to call, to, to return, to call them back to uh, their right place, their right living, acknowledging the purposes of God for them and, and the role of them in the world. Um, but I guess long story short, we could say that Israel was a mess. Things were a mess. Things were not as they ought to have been. It is in that context that Isaiah writes the words that we will read today. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, read, And it shall happen in future days that the mount of the Lord's house shall be firm founded at the top of the mountains and lifted over the hills. 
and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God, that he may teach us of his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion shall teaching come forth, and the Lord's words from Jerusalem. He shall judge among the nations, and be arbiter for many peoples. And they shall grind their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not raise sword against nation, nor shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's light. There is much more to Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, the suffering servant. Uh, we will read much about that, particularly in the later parts of the book of Isaiah. But this is the first picture that Isaiah gives to the nation of Israel about what the world will be like when that Messiah comes. We're going to walk through it a little bit today and talk a little bit about some of the imagery and the words that are used. In the very beginning here, we read this phrase, it shall happen in future days. And there are some translations that put into that phrase this idea of the apocalyptic end times, the, the second coming, the judgment day of the, the Lord of the day, the, or the day of the Lord, as we have talked about before. Um, in, in the actual original Hebrew and the phrase that gets used, it gets rendered much accurately, more accurately here that is in future days, it is this idea of a time after this time. And so it is not necessarily the coming of the Messiah, the second coming, the, the day of judgment, so to speak. Um, and so I would encourage you not to read it that way. Isaiah is just simply talking about a day sometime in the future. But he says that someday in the future that the mount of the Lord's house shall be firm founded at the top of the mountains and lifted over the hills. And this imagery uh, is used because at the time, not only the Israelites, but the whole world was understanding and had this idea that God's lived in houses or lived at top of hills and mountains. And so Isaiah is using that imagery here to speak of God in his mountain, in his home, being raised up above all of the others. And so this is a moment in the future when God will become the God of gods, the one God above all others, um, and he will be recognized by all as such. And he says that by going on to verse 3. He says, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall go and say, come, let us go. Here is a unique, important, and, and novel idea that Isaiah is bringing into his scripture, and that is that all nations will be drawn to, to God. We have, of course, this idea, this promise that was made to Abraham that all nations will be blessed by his family, that the whole world will be blessed by the nation of Israel. But here in Isaiah, we see this imagery of all nations coming to God. And, and this is the first real picture that we have of the universality of the promise of peace, of shalom, of the day when God will be putting things right will mean that all nations come together. And, and this will be the idea that gets echoed by Paul when he says that uh, there are no Jews, no Gentiles, no males, no females. Uh, there is no division, no otherness. Um, that's going to be important here in a minute as we go on. But here Isaiah is giving us this picture of all of the nations coming together and marching, or he says actually flowing towards, up, flowing up the hill towards God. And it is important that he, or meaningful that he uses that imagery. Of course, we know that rivers flow downhill. And so the idea that this river of people flows uphill 
uh, carries with it this sort of uh, powerful imagery that God, his, his goodness is so magnetic that it draws people almost unnaturally to him. And then towards the end of what I just read, it says, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. This idea that the people will look at the, each other and say, come, let us go. It, there are sort of two points to be made there. One is that it is voluntary, that people are, um, are drawn to God, but they are willing to go. And so they turn to one another and say, let's go. Um, the other piece there is that the nations turn to each other and say, come, let's go. And so there is a transcending a, of national boundaries, this idea that nation encourages nation to seek God uh, in the midst of what's going on. And so that what for the Israel people at the time that Isaiah writes this is a time of uh, national danger and anxiety, a uh, time of warfare, that is all going to be set aside. And the Assyrians, which are pressing in on them now, will be one of the nations to which they turn and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And so it's this picture of a time when all of the anxiety and strife and warfare will cease and the people of the world will become one people. And they are going to go to his house. And the question is why? And, and Isaiah tells us that they're going to be taught that they are going to God's house or God's mountain, not just to worship, not just to be in his presence, but to be taught his, uh, his instructions, his teachings for, for their life. Um, and then the question, of course, is, well, what, what is he going to teach and why? And he, I, Isaiah answers that question in the next line. He says, that we may walk in his paths. And so there is this uh, picture, this beautiful sort of dynamic relationship that Isaiah presents between God and his people in which he draws them, they come willingly, he teaches them, they listen, they turn, and they go out and they live the life that God would have them live. And so there's this dynamic, as I said, relationship between God and his people that Isaiah presents here. And then in verse 4, we get some imagery that has become very famous. Uh, we have all certainly heard it. Um, and it revolves around the laying down of our arms uh, we as people, as humans, often think that we are going to find peace by enforcing arms treaties, uh, enforcing borders. Um, we think that we will reduce weapons and, and that as we, we reduce weapons, we will find peace. The picture that Isaiah presents to us is fundamentally different from that. The picture that Isaiah is presenting is a world that becomes peaceful because God has reordered that world around himself. It is a picture in which all of us realize that we are being drawn to God, that we are one people in relationship to God. And as one nation looks at another or one people or one person looks at another person and says, come, let us go to the mountain, we are necessarily overlooking and transcending our differences. And so as I look to you and say, come, let us go, as we as a people look to people outside the church and say, come, let us go, and as an entire nation looks at another entire nation and says, come, let us go, all of the things that would keep us separate have to and necessarily dissolve and become non-issues, that we're all going together as one people to God. That's the picture that Isaiah is presenting here. And that is made possible in some ways because we all recognize the goodness of God, that whatever it is that we need, God will provide, that we ultimately are his children. And 
once we have that realization, when I realize that the things that I need, uh, God will provide for me, that I don't need to take the things you have, that I don't need to be jealous of what you have, that I don't need to pick up a weapon and fight you for the things that you have, when I realize that God will provide for me and God will provide for you, and uh, it is out of his goodness that I will have the things that I need, I no longer need to be jealous or envious uh, or hateful or find ways to fight and take the things that I think I need. When those principles and that realization becomes elevated to a national level, when nations realize they no longer need to war against each other for resources, for power, uh, for greed, uh, for whatever reason one nation decides it wants to war against another, when we can all realize that together, well then, it's that moment when we no longer need weapons. And so it's not simply by eliminating weapons that we find peace. It is ultimately in reorient, reorienting ourselves around God that we no longer find a need for those weapons. And then Isaiah from there, of course, goes on to give us this really famous imagery of the people of the world taking their, their weapons, their spears and their swords and beating them, grinding them into farm implements. And that imagery, of course, is not an accident. It's intentional. Um, and this recalls the Garden of Eden, of course, that, that we take the weapons that we have used to provide for ourselves through warfare and uh, sort of evil means. And we turn them into the implements that we need as we return to the state in which God had originally created us. And so we go back to the state of the garden or forward to the state of the new garden. And the tools that we now need are the tools of the garden. Uh, of, of, they are the tools of peace, of shalom. And then in his last line, as he closes this short passage, Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's light. And so at, on, on the heels of this picture of shalom, of peace, of, of the world in which the people no longer need to worry about Assyria or Babylon or the Greeks or the Romans, um, he presents to them this picture of hope and of peace in which they can once again be God's people. He reminds them, house of Jacob, that they must come and walk in the Lord's light. And this is the broader context and purpose of Isaiah's prophetic work was to call God's people back to that right relationship. And uh, they need to recognize that they need to do their part. They need to uphold their side of the covenant for God to uphold his, that it was a, a two-part deal. As we mentioned, this comes at the beginning in chapter two of Isaiah's prophetic work. Chapter one, as we alluded to, is full of Isaiah calling out God's people for their evil misdeeds. And so this is the first peaceful, hopeful picture that Isaiah presents, the first peaceful, hopeful picture that the prophets present uh, in, in the text of the time when Messiah will come and God will begin to put things right. And so this is the seed that will grow into the great hope for Israel, that by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, Israel will be in full expectation and have a full understanding and hope based upon all of the prophetic work of the coming Messiah and the great peace and tranquility and uh, reestablishment of God's order that will, that will be brought forth by that coming. 
But we must also remember that as this is written during the Syrian crisis, they, soon the Assyrians will fade and the Babylonians will rise and they will come and they will destroy Jerusalem. They will destroy the temple and they will take a, a good number of the leaders of Israel to Babylon in what's known as the Babylonian exile. And we've talked about that. And they will spend some time there. They will ultimately come back, but they will come back to an Israel that is a pale comparison to its former glory. They will in time rebuild a temple, but as we know, they will be uh, ruled by the Greeks and then the Romans. Uh, by the time Jesus comes on the scene as the Roman Empire, that is their overlords, they have rebuilt the temple, but as we've said on a number of occasions, God has not returned. And so despite the fact that their physical exile from Babylon has ended, their spiritual experience of exile continues. God has not come back. The picture that Isaiah has presented here has not come about. But as we near that first century mark, when we know Jesus does come, as we get into the 100 or 200 years prior to that, the people of Israel are beginning to understand and read the whole of the prophetic work and begin to work out when exactly it is that they are to expect the coming Messiah. And using some scriptures in Daniel, they were plotting it right about the time that Jesus comes. Within that 60, 70 year period was the window in which, based upon a phrase, which is weeks of weeks, which works out to be uh, 490 years from the writing of the prophecy, that window was open. And that's why we see in the history of Israel at a time, a number of people rise up and claim to be Messiah. Uh, the, the, the people of Israel were looking for Messiah at this time. And so as we sit here today in the first week of Advent and uh, a week when our theme is hope, let us put ourselves in the mindset of that first century. Let us go back and imagine ourselves as a shepherd on a hill or a merchant in the market as you spend your days walking around and on the corners are soldiers. Um, there is, of course, this tension, but there is also this rising expectation and this hope that this reality that you find yourself in is, is about to come to an end. When the leaders of Israel were exiled, exported to Babylon, and then under Cyrus, they were allowed to return, not everyone returned. And we have records of a school and sort of nation of Judaism that certainly existed in Jerusalem, but there was another one in Babylon. And as this time comes, draws near, as Christmas comes, um, not only are the Jews in Israel expecting and hoping for the arrival of Messiah and the promises of God to be made, there is a whole other school of Judaism in Babylon who is also reading the text and interpreting the text and is also coming to the understanding and realization that the time is coming, that the moment when the promised Messiah will come is upon us. And so a group of them leave Babylon and they travel to Israel expecting to find the Messiah. These are who we know as the wise men, the magi. Um, in, in some popular understanding, these were uh, just wise sort of magicians from the East, but in all likelihood, they were Jews who had not left Babylon, who themselves were pouring through the scriptures, understanding that this was the time. And so in some ways, independently, we have these two schools of Judaism coming to the same conclusion at the same time, that at this moment, this is the time when God will make his promises 
known to us who will act upon his promise of a Messiah. And so it is in that world of utter chaos, of anxiety and stress, that Jesus will come. Today, I don't want to jump forward too quickly to Christmas. We are four weeks out. And in the Christian year, in the Christian calendar, this is the time when we begin to wait. This is the time when we remember the stories that we've talked about today. We remember the chaos of the world. We remember the strife. We remember the heartache. We remember the oppression that the people of God were suffering through. And we try to put ourselves in that place, in that headspace, in that mindset, um, as we look forward to the celebration of his arrival, as we look forward to celebrating the birth of the Messiah. We, of course, know that the Messiah has come, but they certainly had not and were expecting. As we sit here today and we try to do that, um, as we talk about the hope of the Messiah and we talk about the hope of the world and we talk about being made whole and new and finding peace, we do so in a context in which the pandemic has very literally come to our doorstep. I mean, there's a reason that I'm talking to you today through a video camera and we're not gathered. And it is that the world which we have been fortunate to hold at bay uh, for some time now is, is at our doorstep. And as a result, uh, the anxiety that we are all feeling is no doubtedly uh, being raised. Um, the fear that we have heard people talk about, but perhaps not experienced ourselves, is more real for us now than perhaps it has been in the past, or at least for some of us, I'm sure. So today, as we read from Isaiah, and we think about the coming Messiah, we think about the brokenness of our world, the needs of our world, um, we realize, of course, that we live on this side of the Messiah, that 2,000 years ago he came, and that the project was launched, the restoration uh, of the world has begun, it will, of course, come into fulfillment in a full and real way at his, at his second coming, but that we are called to be agents of restoration. But in the midst of this time, and particularly this day when we cannot gather, we are called to look around and reach out to our friends and our neighbors and our families and to love one another, to hope for the time when we can gather again to hope for the time when we are healthy again, to hope for the time when sickness and illness and the brokenness of the world that's around us, poverty, injustice, all the things that we see that are not right, we hope for the days when they are no more. And we trust, as the Israelites did in the first century, that God will make good on his promises. For hundreds of years, they had been relying on and resting in the words that Isaiah and the prophets had given them, 
the promises that God had made to them, that things would be made new again, that things would be made right again. And today, as we read the picture of the world as it will one day be, let us grasp that hope, let us hold on to that hope. Let us also recognize that we are to partner in the bringing about of that world here and now. As we sit in this moment, in the first week of Advent, awaiting the birthday of our Lord and Savior. We do so with eagerness. We do so with a bit of anxiety, but we do so with great hope in the promises of our Lord and Savior. Amen.